welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. All right, open up your Bibles to Exodus 20, verse 14. We're going to continue to the Ten Commandments tonight. So get there. We are on the Seventh Commandment. Exodus 20, verse 14. Five words. Five words. Okay. Exodus 2014. We've seen so far, God, he saved them out of Egypt. He brought them to Sinai. He came down and made a covenant with them. He's given them his law. First four are about loving who? God. Last six are about loving who? Love God, love neighbor. And now we are at number seven. You shall not commit adultery. So let's pray. Father, thank you that we get to hear from your word tonight. We need to hear your word. We need to hear what you have to teach us on this subject. So give us all ears and a heart that are receptive to what you want to say to us. And help me, Lord, fill me with your spirit even now so that we might all go away rejoicing because you've made yourself known through your word. Give us a glimpse of our sinfulness. Give us a glimpse of your will for us. And a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We want to see you and go in love for you tonight. So, come and teach us, Lord. Amen. Okay. See if you can recognize what I'm saying with these words. I, Charles... Take thee, Susanna, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish, till death do us part. What's that from? Charles? A wedding. A wedding. Those are wedding vows. Yeah, and that was Charles and Susanna. That's the name of Charles Spurgeon and his wife, Susanna Spurgeon, so I decided to choose a good name like that. So yeah. We all recognize those words. They're familiar words that you hear. If you've gone to a wedding, you're going to hear something like that, unless they make their own vows, which happens. But those are good ones. Um, and they remind us, they remind us this about marriage. It is a exclusive, one man and one woman, and them alone in this relationship, an exclusive lifelong, till death goes part. It, it's for all of life. It's an exclusive lifelong relationship of mutual love and commitment. So that's what it teaches about marriage. It's a vow. They're saying, I'm committing to love you. It's not just about a feeling. I'm committing to love you. Even when we're not that rich, when you're sick, when you're ugly, I'm still going to love you. That's what those marriage vows are saying. <laughs> so 
They're sweet. And they remind us back. They point us all the way back to creation. In Genesis 2, when Adam was alone, and God said it's not good for man to be alone. Colin preached on this a couple months ago, I guess. So God brought to Adam, he made a wife named Eve, and he gave him to Adam, and Adam was happy. He said, this is a good gift. And God was excited that he had given him such a good gift. And Adam was too. And he sang that song, and then it says, a man shall leave, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. So we're going to be talking about that gift of marriage, and adultery is when that gift is broken, when it's shattered, when those vows are faithlessly just let go of. Like glass. Mm-hmm. So God delights in this gift. He loves it, and he makes him angry when it's shattered. And any form, any form of sexual expression outside of the bounds of marriage is evil in God's sight. He abhors any perversion of this generous gift of sex and marriage and is justly indignant when this institution is not held in honor among all. Hebrews 13 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So that's why we have this command in Exodus 20.14. God loves marriage and he wants to guard it. So he gives a command, do not commit adultery. And so, that's saying, what is, so what is adultery? Simply put, it's breaking your marriage vows. And how would you break your marriage vows? By deserting or betraying, like if someone deserted or betrayed their husband or wife to sleep with or seek sexual gratification with another man or woman. And I know all these words are probably raising questions on your minds. And curiosity is like, what are you talking about? I'm not really sure. And I just want to say three things before we start. If you have questions and you're curious, don't think about those right now. Think about what God's Word is saying to you right now, where you are, and seek to <coughs> submit to it. That's the first thing. Second, it's good to have those questions. So go to the right place to have them answered. Talk to your parents or a guardian and ask them, hey, they talked about this. I'm not sure I understand this. Can you explain? Don't go to anyone else or anything else to ask those questions. Go to someone who you can trust, an adult, a parent, something like that. And third, I know, I was once younger, it always seemed awkward to me when the pastor or preacher talked about adultery or sexual sins. And I would try to avoid it if I could. I'd be like, I'm going to go to a different Sunday school or something like that. But it's important for us to hear because it's attacked in our culture. And Satan is going to try to tempt all of you guys right now. I know there's many of you guys whom he's already got in his hand with these sins. And you need to hear these things. You need to hear this message from God's Word. So, listen carefully. That's, that's the point. Listen carefully. Hear what God wants to teach you tonight through this. So now, as, as usual, we're just starting in Exodus 20. We're gonna, this is just our launch pad from what the, to what the rest of the Bible teaches on the subject. So go to Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Matthew 5, 27 through 30, where Jesus is going to comment. He's going to comment on this command right here and explain fully what it means. And tonight, I want to show you that the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, expresses our duty to honor marriage by being sexually pure in our actions, thoughts, and words. So that we might fight sexual sin and flee to Christ. So that's what the command tells us. Be pure in actions, thoughts, and words. Okay. 
And I've got three questions for my points. First, what is the command? Sexual purity. Second, how do we obey this command? And I'm going to give three practical P's, which you'll get to later, to see how we obey it. And third, why does God command us? Why is he so intent on guarding marriage? It's a picture. It's a picture of Christ in the church. And we will get to that. So follow along with me as we answer these questions. And let's go to Matthew 5. I always forget to turn <laughs> when you guys are turning. Okay. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Jesus is here saying how he fulfills the law. He's explaining what it fully means. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. These are the words of Jesus to us. So let's listen. Let's hear. So what does this command teach us? What is it telling us? It tells us to honor marriage by being sexually pure in actions, thoughts, and words. So I'm going to go through those three things. Actions. Thoughts and words. And first of all, the question is, what does it mean to be sexually pure? So I'm going to answer that first of all. Well, the word pure, it means unmixed and uncontaminated. For example, if you have a pure German Shepherd, that means it's not part German Shepherd and part Black Lab, or part Golden Retriever, or part, what's, it, what's, a, what's that really tiny little dog called? Chihuahua. It's not part German Shepherd and part Chihuahua. It has a German Shepherd mom and a German Shepherd dad, and it's pure German Shepherd. It's unmixed. Or pure milk. There's no orange juice in it. It's pure milk. That would be so disgusting. Have you ever done that? That's just really gross. Pure orange juice. There's no toothpaste in it. It's pure orange juice. When the Bible says that men or husbands are to be, husbands or wives are to be sexually pure, it means in their hearts there's no mixture of love. It's pure devotion to one person. Not a little bit for their husband and a little bit for another person somewhere out, anywhere. Pure devotion. So, and what, so, yes. <laughs> Sexual purity means that if you are married, you only express yourself sexually with your spouse alone. And it means that if you are not married, you must be self-controlled and refrain from sexual actions, thoughts, and speech. Remember those actions, thoughts, and speech. That's what we're going through. Sexual purity in actions, thoughts, and speech. So, first of all, actions. And look at verse 27. Jesus reiterates Exodus 20:14 says, "You shall not commit adultery." He's saying any action, any physical external action where you're breaking your marriage vows. This is how the Pharisees would have understood at that time. You, so that means don't commit adultery. Don't leave your husband or wife to go pursue another person. It also means don't commit sexual immorality, which means having sex before you are married. And any other thing that breaks that pattern. The point is Marriage is reserved, or sex is reserved for marriage alone. In the Bible, it is God's gift. It, and it's compared, you can think of it like fire. Fire is a great thing when it's in the heart, in the fireplace. It keeps you warm. There's lots of joy and pleasure and goodness that comes out of that. But if you put that fire in your lap, it's going to burn you. It's going to hurt. 
and you might die. It might even burn the whole house down. Fire is a good thing when it's in the right place. It is a very bad thing when it's not in the right place, when it's not in a safe and secure place. That's what marriage is. It's a safe and secure place for people to express themselves sexually. It's God's gift. So anything outside of that, that's why the whole you know, the list of LGBTQ, all those things are sin. They're wrong. They're breaking God's pattern. So the actions, external actions that break God's pattern, that are having sex outside of marriage, are sins. That's what Jesus is condemning. Now, of course, the Pharisees were like, yeah, and we're good because we've never done that. So I've never broken this command. We can move on to the next command. Don't steal. Oh, yeah, I haven't done that too much either. Not big things. Jesus says, hold, hold your horses. You are not really understanding what this command is. It's more than just physical actions, external actions. It also demands purity in your heart. Sexual purity in your heart. In your thoughts. Says it in verse 28. He says, But I say to you, you with your wrong interpretation, you Pharisees, that everyone, every single person who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, If you look at a woman with sexual lust in your heart, then you have already committed this grievous crime in your heart. He condemns the sinful, dirty, filthy, and impure thoughts imaginations and fantasies about a person of the opposite sex that cause you to look at them lustfully and to keep doing so. Do you look at things you know that you shouldn't when you think no one else is looking? When you are in public at school or a beach or somewhere else, do you look at boys or girls as beautiful people made in the image of God? Or do you treat them like sexual objects to serve your own dirty thoughts and gratify your corrupt lusts? What do you do when no one is looking? You might be able to deceive your parents. You might be able to deceive your friends and your leaders. But you cannot deceive God. You cannot hide from Him. He sees what you do in secret. And He sees the thoughts and intentions of your heart. They are naked and exposed, Hebrews 4.12 says, before Him. And He will call you to account for them. Do you think since they're private and they're in your heart, they don't really hurt anyone else? It's not a problem. God doesn't care about that. God does care. Because it's still destroying God's purpose, his intention for sexuality. And it's sin in his sight when you, in your heart, have such evil thoughts. So Jesus said, if you've already committed adultery, a sin deserving death, if you've looked at someone with lustful intent, you've had evil thoughts about them. But then he also goes on, and he says, in light of this, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is kind of adding on to the, the thoughts is that not only should you avoid those thoughts, but you should get rid of the temptations to those thoughts. The things in your life that are going to lead you into those sins, cut them out, throw them away. And he's doing here what's called hyperbole, which means he's using exaggerated language to really force a point. To really make the point clear. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It says, he, he's not telling you to actually cut your eye out. That's why it's called hyperbole. But he is telling you, it might hurt to get that thing out of your life. And that might be very inconvenient. 
But it doesn't matter. Because sexual sin, lust in your heart is serious. He says it's better. It's better to lose that thing for you know a couple weeks or months or moments than to lose your soul for eternity because you've been enslaved to sexual sin. You say, but that is such an important part of my life. I don't know what I would do without it. I grant that it might be important and it might hurt to remove it, but is it more important than heaven? Will it be more painful to remove that temptation and deny your lust than to burn forever in hell? This is how Jesus is speaking. No matter how inconvenient or painful it might be to gouge temptations out of your life, it is better to suffer now for a couple of moments than to suffer for eternity in hell. It is better to not deny a few moments of passing pleasures of sin now in order to enjoy the eternal pleasures of heaven in God's presence. So what is something that's causing you to sin? What is something in your life that's causing you to lust? Cut it out. Gouge it out. Tear it out. It might be inconvenient. Jesus is saying, don't let it stay in your life. It might be social media. It might be any number of things. The movies you watch, the places you go. Jesus is just saying, I'm not telling you what it is for you, but I think you guys know. You need to take extreme actions against whatever that thing is. Not only does he say to get the things out of your life that are tempting you to sin, but he also says, not in this passage, but in Matthew 18, he builds on this thought. He says this in 6-8. He's saying, not only should you beware being tempted yourself, but also of tempting others to sexual sin. He says this in Matthew 16-8. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, believers, to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Woe means judgment, condemnation on the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe, judgment, to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter a life trouble, crippled or lame, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. Jesus is using strong language. I hope you see that. He's using very strong language to tell you you need to avoid this sin at all costs. Not just being tempted to do it yourself, but also tempting others. And it's summer. I remember last year, I was talking with some of my friends at the beginning of the summer. They were so excited. It's warm weather. It's just so beautiful out. Isn't it beautiful outside? Yesterday and today was so beautiful. I love the sunshine. It's like the whole earth's just full of God's glory. It's beautiful. And they were excited about that. And how can you not be happy on days like today? But then they're also saying it's sad because all the girls at their school were just dressing in so, such inappropriate and immodest ways. And they desired, they desired to honor God, to be pure in their hearts. But they couldn't even go out in public without, they'd have to like look up at the sky as they walk around, or look down at the ground. Because our culture just thinks it's appropriate and okay to dress in totally immodest ways. And this is not just a problem for girls, it's also for boys. We need to be on guard against how the world is influencing us. So, what's the point? Do you love, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Don't do anything that would tempt them to sin. It'd be better, Jesus says, to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown to the sea than to lead someone else into sin. Jesus cares that we are modest and we care about other people and we don't want to lead them into sin. So this command requires sexual purity in external actions and also in our hearts. 
And finally, it requires sexual purity in our words, in our speech, how we talk. So go to Ephesians 5, 3 for this next part. Ephesians 5, 3. High school has been preaching to Ephesians, and they just did this passage a couple weeks ago. But it is very important for this subject. Ephesians 5, 3. Ephesians 5, 3. Okay, I'm going to start reading. It says this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. It shouldn't even be named among you. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So what's this passage saying? Paul starts off and he says, sexual immorality and impurity and all covetousness, covetousness must not even be named among you. That's not proper for saints. You realize if we are believers, Christ has made us holy. He has cleansed us from our sins. And so, such crude and filthy language does not belong on our, on our mouth, on our tongues. It's out of place. And then he says that in verses 3 and 4. It's out of place. This kind of language should not be in you. When you're joking, about, you're making sexual jokes, and you're making every little... Everything that someone says, you're making it into have some dirty connotations. That that should that's not proper, he says, for saints. And then he tells them, you may be sure of this. Although there's other people, he says, who are trying to deceive you and tell you it doesn't really matter, let no one deceive you. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or pure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's because of these things that right now the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So he's telling them, he's basically saying, these sins that you don't think are a big deal, they're the reason that the world has having judgment on them right now, in this life, and the reason that people will be excluded from the kingdom for eternity. The kingdom just means heaven, eternal life. So again, he's just like Jesus. He says these sins are serious. Don't tolerate them. I was once in middle school. I know a lot of you guys have lots of friends. And you yourselves, many of you, I'm sure, have will turn just about everything into a sexual joke. And I want you to know from this passage, if you're living in sin, that such jokes might make your buddies laugh, but they make God weep. They might please your friends, but they incur the judgment of your creator and judge. They might make your friends grin, but they make your loving father frown. Has zero tolerance for such sins. Don't even become partners with your friends and saying all kinds of crude and filthy jokes and don't listen to the corrupting talk that comes out of their mouths that is full of sexual immorality and lust. It has no place in your mouth. It has no place in our heart, in our desires, in our thoughts, in our eyes. That's the whole point here. We should honor marriage by being sexually pure in our actions, our thoughts, and our speech. 
Now I want you guys to think about that. Have you broken this command? Does this expose your sin? Have you sinned in this way? Search your heart. This command requires these things of us. And one pastor summed up the duty, this, the duty of the command very powerfully. He said, we must have zero tolerance for lustful talk, lustful looks, lustful reading, lustful dress, and lustful touch. For lust is not love. That's a mistake our whole culture makes. Lust is not love, rather defiles desire, contradicts our holy calling, corrupts our conversations, and damns sinners to hell. That's a clear summary of everything I just said from the Bible. So, the law, it does show the depth of our sin in this area of sexuality. It's a good gift, but we have really messed it up. We have really corrupted it since the fall. And so these next two, the next two points, that one was what is a command? What does it forbid? The next two points have to do for how we're going to overcome it and how we can have hope. So how do we obey this command? How do we obey this command? This is point two. The practical P's. The practical P's for fighting lust. The first one is we need partners. We need partners. It says in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one. So they have a good return for the toil. And if one falls down, the other can pick them up. God's given us the church for a reason. We're all fighting. And we're all brothers and sisters. And we need to fight together. There's people right next, next to you right now whom they need your help. And those people right next to you, you need to ask them for help. You need to confess your sins to them. Say, I struggle with this sin. And... It's been defeating me. I really haven't been struggling with it. It's just been dominating me. And I need help. I need prayer. I need you to encourage me with the word and the promises of God so I can fight it. You need partners. That's the first P. The first practical P. Get a partner. Confess in your life groups later. Say, yes, this, sin, this exposed my sin. I need help. You need a partner in here? You need to pray. You need to pray. Hebrews 2, 17-18 says, that Christ, he, he came down. And he, he says, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, a merciful and faithful high priest, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It says, for since he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Remember this, Christ is merciful and he is faithful. Have you fallen into these sins this week? He is merciful. He is fully satisfied for all your sins on the cross. He took the penalty. And you can come to him and say, Father, Jesus, forgive me for my sin. He's merciful. He's also faithful. If you go to Hebrews 4, 16 through 18, which you don't need to go there now, it says that Christ is, we can draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy, like I just said, and find grace to help in time of need. When you're tempted, Christ can give you grace. He can give you strength. And this is so, so important. Just me, personally, my life. When I was a freshman, I, I started to realize I had someone else, just like I'm going to do right now, preach and explain that this is sin. I had a leader confront me and a bunch of my other friends about this sin. And I started to realize it was sin, and then the fight began. But over, this, over that summer, I, I would kind of give into it, and I'd fall. And I started to realize, I'm not strong enough to defeat this on my own. I love this sin. I need help. I don't want to live in, under the dominion of this sin. So I started to realize... Every time I was tempted, the moment I was tempted, I'd say, God, help me. Jesus, help me, because I'm not strong enough. So next time you're tempted, pray. 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 Ask God for help. 
Because these sins are serious. We need partners. We need prayer. And we need to peek. Now this one, you're like, what do you mean by that? That's kind of silly. Peek. How does that help us to fight sexual sin? What do we peek? It depends upon what you're peeking at. Obviously, our problem with our sexual sins is that we're peeking at the wrong things. But the Bible tells us how, how we can find some, the power to hate these things that we once loved. Uh, just listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. My point here is that we need to look at something more beautiful than what this world offers, more beautiful than sin. Listen to C.S. Lewis' quote. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What's his point there? You think you can't be happy without some of these sins, these things you hold on to. And every time you're tempted, they tell you, you can't be happy without me. You need me. And the fact is, they're really low. They're not the perfection of beauty. There's something far greater that's offered to us. A holiday at the sea. And that's the problem, is that so many of you, you've never come, you've never had your heart changed. You can't even imagine what it means to have joy in God. But God, you think he's boring. He's just a killjoy. He tells me all the things I can't do. You really think that? You can't imagine what this means. A holiday at the sea? Never even heard of that. I don't have any category for explaining that. Well, there is much greater joy in knowing God. There's a Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon he was, I think, in the 19th century. And it was titled The Expulsive Power of Greater Affection. His point is this. If you want to stop loving something, then find something that you love even more. Find something that's even more beautiful, and that will push out. It'll ex it's, it has expulsive power to push that thing out of your life. And that's my point for you right now is that Jesus, there is more joy in knowing Jesus than what this world, than what sin offers you. Moses, choosing, he chose rather to endure mistreatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin because he was looking to the reward. See that there's so much greater joy in knowing God. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing have I asked the Lord, that will I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to acquire in his temple. You think, if I'm pure, I'm not going to see beauty. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's much more beautiful things to see. There's greater pleasures than what this world and what sin offers you. Peek. Peek. Take a look. Open up the Bible. Look at Jesus in the Gospel. He's beautiful. I can testify. There's far more joy in Jesus and what your sin offers you. So keep peeking. Open up your Bible. Study it. Partner, pray, peek. Those are the practical peas for how to overcome sexual sin. So we're commanded to do this. Those are some steps, steps to fight for it that I believe come from the Bible. The question is, why does God care so much about guarding marriage? 
Why does God care so much about buying ready? Why is this command here? Why does it say not commit adultery? Wow, I, but yeah, <laughs> um, it's it's a picture. It is a picture of Christ and the church. God gave this command in order to preserve marriage, which was originally created as a picture for us to peek at Christ in. So we're already in Ephesians 5. You can stay there, just go to verse 22. And this is showing us how marriage has always been from the beginning, a picture of Christ in the church. Ephesians 5.22 says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What's this point there? Wives are to submit to their husbands, even marriage, is pointing to Christ and the church. And the church submits to Christ in everything. You and me, we're believers. Everything Jesus says in this book, we say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I want to do this because you are my loving Savior. You are my head. So he says, wives, submit to your husbands just like that. And he moves on to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Therefore, there is quoting Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is his comment on that verse. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I want to start at verse 31 and 32. The foundation of everything he just commanded them, husband, wives submit your husband, husbands love your wives, is this. He reads Genesis 2 and he says, from the beginning, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that that verse refers to Christ in the church. He's saying the whole institution of marriage is a picture of Christ. So here's how it did not work. God was not like, oh, you know, I'm trying to figure out how can I communicate to these people how much I love them. Oh, there's marriage. I guess that'll work, you know. No, from the beginning, he said, I'm creating marriage. I'm designing it in such a way that it will be a perfect one of the best pictures there is of my love for my people, of Christ's love for his church. So marriage is a picture. It's a picture of Christ's love for us, and I've got three W's for this one. Christ's love for us in three ways. In winning us, in washing us, in wedding us. In winning us, in washing us, and wedding us. First, look at verse 25 to 27. His love, or 25. It's his love for us in winning us. He came down from heaven. Like Jacob went across the Euphrates River to get his wife Rachel. He was sent by his father to get her. And he labored for seven years and then 14 years to win his lovely bride for himself. And it says, it says, it seemed like only a few days for Jacob because of the love that he had for her. That's what Jesus did. He came down. His father sent him down to, to get the bride whom he had chosen for him. 
And Jesus labored under the cruel master. He labored under the heavy burdens of the law. And then he suffered under a sin death. And he did it willingly. Why? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He offered himself as a sacrifice for us to bear our sins. He lived a perfect life and he died for us. He died for us. Now look at this. Why did he die for us? Verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing water with the word. You know what that implies? It implies that when he died for us, when he loved us, we were filthy. We were dirty. We were messed up. Otherwise, we wouldn't have needed to be washed. Otherwise, we wouldn't have needed to be sanctified, made holy. We had lots of flaws. But listen to this. Christ came to win you for himself when you were still a sinner. When you were still defiled with all your sexual sins. With the lust in your heart and the words that you spoke. <coughs> so, if he did that for you when you were still a sinner, what sin can you do now? What sin can you do now that's going to make him stop loving you? There's nothing. Christ loved us and won us for himself as his bride. He also loved us and washed us. He washed us. He cleansed us from our sins. Jeremiah 2.22 says, it's, it's talking, he's using marriage in Jeremiah 2 to speak about how the people of God, Israel, have forsaken him and gone after other lovers, their idols, their sins. And he says, though you wash yourselves with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt remains before me. No, not your good works, not your tears, not your anything you try to do to make yourself feel better and try to get rid of the guilt and shame. You can't wash it away. We can't wash ourselves. We're not powerful enough, but Christ Jesus can. That's why he died for us, so that he might sanctify her. That's the progressive change that he works in us, making us holy, cleansing us, cleansing us from our sin. Having cleansed her by the washing of water of the Lord. Here's, here's basically three things he says. Christ sanctifies us after having washed us with the word. That means he came to us with the gospel. He brought the gospel to us, the word, and he washed us. He washes us in two things right at our conversion. The guilt of sin and its pollution. The stain of sin and its power over us. You are all sinners. I'm a sinner. He took away that guilt. He washed us. I was just thinking, it's, you guys, you know, sometimes you'll, you maybe, you're playing really gross sport, you get all sweaty, you're covered in dirt and mud, and maybe you're playing in the mud, whatever it is, you're working hard, and you come home, you don't really realize how disgusting you are, you don't really realize how bad you smell, until you take a shower, and then you, then you pick up your clothes, you're like, oh, just put these back on, and you're like, <coughs> and it smells gross, you're like, I can't put those back on, I've been washed, I've been cleansed from my sins, I need new, fresh clothing, those are not comfortable for me anymore, they feel just nasty. When Christ washes us, when he cleanses, when he forgives our sin, and then gives us a new heart that loves him, we're, we're, we're scrubbed clean of all our dirt and filth. And we can't put on the old clothes anymore. The old clothes. That's why he says, it's not proper among saints to speak with this crude joke. 
Have you been washed? That should be stinky to you. It should be disgusting, sweaty, and nasty. Don't put it back on. Instead, we put on new clothes that Christ gives us. It says in Revelation that it was granted to the church, Christ's bride, to clothe ourselves with fine linens, bright and pure. And the fine linens are the righteous deeds of the saints. Christ gives us good works to put on after we've been cleansed. He washes us. And you know what? No matter how dirty you are, He can wash you. He can cleanse you. <coughs> Finally, He weds us. He, he, he brings us to the marriage ceremony, and He takes us to be His bride forever. That happens, verse 27 tells us. He works in us now so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So you and me, he's going to present us to himself. And all those things you have now, spots and wrinkles and flaws, gone. Gone. We will be holy and without blemish. And I just find that so encouraging for in three ways. First, this, this hope that we're going to be presented before Jesus, we're going to see him as he is. We're going to see Jesus. If you just wait a little bit, you will see him who is the perfection of beauty. Isaiah 33, 17 says, Your eyes shall see the king in all his beauty. That's what's going to happen on that day. A little bit of self-denial now, you'll see him as the perfection of beauty, Jesus Christ. You'll see his glory. Second, he gives you hope in this trouble. Some of you guys really do struggle against these sins, and you want to overcome them. And you fall and you fail. It won't always be that way. You've got guaranteed victory. Christ is going to finish the work he started in you. He's going to finish the work. You're going to see Jesus. The work will one day be finished. You've got hope in the struggle now. And third, it gives you motive to make yourself ready. It gives you motive to make yourself ready. So Revelation 19, it talks about how the bride was to come before him. It would grant it to her, make yourself ready by clothing yourself with fine linen right here. I've got a question for you. What bride is there who does not joyfully clothe herself and make herself beautiful for her bridegroom on her wedding day? That's, that would be silly. Doesn't she want to be so beautiful for him so that his heart would almost erupt with delight and his eyes would be flooded with tears of joy and his face explode with a smile. In the same way, make it your goal to make Jesus very happy on that wedding day. Every time you're fighting your sin, you say, I'm just, I'm just putting on my makeup for Jesus. I'm putting on my fine linens, bright and pure. <coughs> Clothe yourself in love and beauty. So Christ weds us himself. He will one day. And the final W, which I didn't, I didn't include there, is that he woos us. That word woo, it's an old word we don't really hear that much anymore. It means trying to persuade someone to love you. You tell them about how much you love them, and you say, I want you to love me back. And you think maybe for this word, you think of Shakespeare. He said in Hamlet, he said, Doubt thou the stars are fire. Doubt that the sun doth move. Doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. Never doubt I love you. He's, he's wooing Ophelia, if you've read Hamlet or watched it. That's what Christ does for us. Some of you right now, he wants to wash you from your sins. He died to save you. And he wants you to be there on that day when there will be feasting and joy forever in heaven. 
He's inviting you to come. Will you come? Will you come? He'll watch you. Will you say, yes? He's saying, will you marry me? Say, I will. I, I do. He invites you to come. Come to the wedding. Please come to receive his love. But you say, my clothes are too dirty and defiled. How can I ever get in there? He says, I'll clothe you with pure white garments. And you say, surely, if you knew all my hidden faults and blemishes, you would not accept me. But he insists, I know them all completely. And I still offer you full and free forgiveness. And will myself cleanse you from all of these. You can set forth no objection to his offer that will make him rethink his choice or think twice about his generosity and love towards you. He really wants you, you just as you are, to come to him. And then he will wash away your sins. You are his type. <laughs> he likes to get sinners. That's, that's his type. The kind he can just show his love and mercy to. He delights to show mercy. And he wants you. So this is so come, come to Jesus. Don't wait a moment. Don't be afraid. To, don't try to hide your sins because he knows it already. And he offers to wash them away. It's much better than trying to hide it yourself. He'll hide it for you. This commands a window into our souls. Through it, we can look into our hearts and see them full of filth and lust and sexual perversities. Through it, we see our sexual impurity in actions, thoughts, and speech. We have radically betrayed and rebelled against our God, breaking his loving heart and incurring his just jealousy and wrath. But at the same time, it's a window into Christ's heart. It's a window into Christ's heart for us, and his heart beats with love and compassion and mercy for sinners. Poor Bowser is like us. It lays bare his loving heart. So come and take it. And do two things. Confess that you're guilty and filthy and stained with sexual sin. And only he can wash you. You can't wash yourself. And then two, confess that you're enslaved and dominated by sexual sin. And only he can liberate you and give you power to overcome it. And ask him to do just that. You're guilty, only he can wash you. You're helpless, only he can give you power to overcome it. And then say to Jesus, I, a poor vile sinner, take you, Jesus, to be my wedded husband to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, for now and for all eternity, because death will never do us part. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what Christ has done for us, for his love. Thank you for showing us our sin, and showing us your mercy. God, I pray that you bless the life groups, that you bring these kids to confess their sins one to another and overcome these sins by the power of Jesus Christ. Be continue working God by your Holy Spirit. Amen.